We are continuing our series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Our passage is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 25. If you'd like to use the Black Bibles there in your seats, that will be found on page 960. Um, I'm going to provide some more context and explanation around this passage uh, in a few moments. But let's just pray that the Spirit of God would give us understanding as he speaks to us through his eternal word now. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes. How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or believers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a lot in those 25 verses, and it's just 
part of Paul's argument in chapter 14. Uh, Let's ask that the Lord would give us wisdom and discernment that we would hear what he says and live by it. Gracious God, we have heard you speak. Spirit-inspired word of God to your people. Would you continue by your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts and minds to comprehend your truth, to not just understand it with our minds, but to receive it into our hearts to be shaped, body, will, and mind for your glory as worshipers and servants of you. Lord, help me to speak that which is pleasing and honoring to you and helpful to your people and with all else quickly fall aside. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So where are we? Uh, If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, that passage might seem a bit uh, interesting and obscure. So where are we in this letter? Paul has been writing to the church in Corinth, this very Romanized pagan uh, city in which a church has been established. And Paul has been addressing a variety of gifts in the body the God-ordained and needful design of one body of many members, varied both in personality and place and position in society, as well as in spiritual gifting. He's reminded them, it's not just about one gift. You shouldn't be seeking for everyone to be like you or you to distance yourself because you're not like everyone else. And as he's talked about their gifts and how they're to use their gifts, he's reminded them that more important than the gifts is their use of those gifts in love. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and the way of love. Now, he transitions to point out how the gifts that God has given through His Spirit, such as the use of tongues and prophecy, are to be manifested in the way of love when God's people gather together to worship God. That's what the passage is about. How to apply this way of love This use of God's gifts, the spiritual gifts, in the context of gathered worship. And in order to do that and explain that and talk about that, I think I need to just briefly talk about tongues. In the last few weeks, it's been mentioned multiple times in the passages we've read. I haven't gone into detail, and yet many of you may have questions. What is Paul talking about? You may have been to churches or aware of churches in which the speaking of tongues is regular practice. I need to be brief, this isn't a a lecture, Uh, but let me just say this, that when we ask questions about such things as tongues, that we need to not start with modern day practices and read that back into scripture, but let scripture, as always, evaluate us and those practices. And my goal in these next few minutes is not to use the time to evaluate uh, our charismatic brothers and sisters, Pentecostals and Assemblies of God. Uh, that's not my task. My task is to help us together gather here to study God's word that we would understand and apply it. And I pray that what we talk about is useful when you have conversations with such brothers and sisters. But we want to start with scripture. And before we understand 1 Corinthians 14, we need to back up in the story. We need to start with Pentecost, with the opening chapters of Acts. The disciples are gathered together after Christ has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then as the Jews are gathered together for the festival of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on them. And one of the manifestations of the Spirit is them talking in tongues. 
And what we see there is that this miraculous gift of the Spirit is wed together with God's providence of there being men and women from various countries who speak various languages gathered together. And so as the disciples are speaking languages that they themselves don't otherwise know, the crowds gathered around them recognize their own mother tongues. And it's miraculous. And it leads then to the opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel of Jesus risen from the dead. But the thing that we understand is that what is Pentecost about? What is the outpouring of the Spirit about? The Spirit is poured out on this occasion to testify that the kingdom has been inaugurated. That Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God and the pouring out of these gifts is attestation to his victory and triumph. In Ephesians 4, another chapter that talks about spiritual gifts, it says this, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so in Acts 2, this miraculous gift of tongues is, along with also prophecy, a fulfillment and declaration that Jesus is king and reigns in power and glory. That the outpouring of the Spirit in prophecy is a fulfillment of Joel 2, which speaks to a particular occasion. And so the Spirit is miraculously working to confirm the victory of Christ, signaling As in the Old Testament, when clusters of miracles and prophecy appear, a shift in the redemptive chapter of the history of God's people. If you read the Old Testament, there are miracles, there are amazing things, but it's not throughout the history. They show up in clusters when important things are happening. And so we see in Acts 2, as the disciples speak in these foreign tongues that they themselves don't know, they are signaling the reversal of Babel. When God used languages to confuse the people, now he's using these various languages to gather them in. And at the same time signaling that that God's gracious provision of redemption is expounded beyond the borders of the nation of Israel to gather in the nations. Something has changed with the ascension and session of Christ. But after Acts 2, the Spirit's gift continues to echo through the church But what's absent in the church is all those people from various languages gathered together. You don't have a multilingual gathering in the local assembly. And so the tongues were likely aftershocks through the church, but flowing from the central event of Pentecost. And lacking hard evidence of different understandings in passage, every other time the tongues appear, they don't testify, well, the nature of the tongues has suddenly changed. Uh, when tongues show up in Acts chapter 10 and 19, there's not a declaration, oh, the nature of the gifts change from Acts chapter 2. And then here, Isaiah 28 is referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 to talk about how foreign languages are a sign of what God is doing redemptively. And so I, don't, I can't point to a passage in Scripture and say that Scripture demands a hard stopping of such tongues. But I think that these tongues were meant to be a period-specific sign of the kingdom of God, were not needed with the close of the canon of Scripture, because at the close of the canon, we have been given God's primary means of revelation, the Word of God. And the evidence throughout early church history and on is that there has been a general ceasing of tongues. 
That is a quick, oversimplistic explanation. And if you have questions or you have challenges or want to say, well, what does that mean for my brothers and sisters at a certain church down the street? We'll talk, I'm happy to talk about that. But that's the framework from what the rest of Scripture does for me to inform how I'm going to preach this passage to you this morning. I hope that makes sense. The passage this morning is not answering the question, what is tongues? The Corinthians knew what Paul was talking about, even if history and time leave us a little bit removed. The question of this passage is not, what is tongues? The question is, what is spiritual worship? For the Corinthians, they are zealous, as he indicates in verse 12, for manifestations of the Spirit. They want spiritual things. But as Paul explains that such spiritual things in worship, the things that display the presence of the Spirit, worshiping in spirit and truth is not through personalized, individual experience, such as speaking in tongues. But rather, it's in worship that reflects the character of the Spirit of God. The Spirit whose fruit is love. And we looked at the character and nature of love last week. As we saw last week, that love considers the other. Love builds up. And so this is less about tongues and prophecy specifically, but it's rather about in consideration of these various gifts that God has given to the church, especially at this time and this moment in Corinth, what principles should operate how they worship God in the Spirit. Spiritual worship obeys the way of love because the Spirit is the Spirit of love. And so spiritual worship loves God. Spiritual worship loves God's Word. It causes us to love one another and to love the outsider. And if you were just checking the outline, you'll notice that's a different order. I've changed the order of the second and fourth points. Worship in the Spirit is not about personalized, individualized experience. It's about the love of God manifest in the work of the Spirit among His people. And that starts, spiritual worship starts with love of God. First, let me be clear. Paul does not set speaking in tongues as opposed to worshiping God. He doesn't say, tongues doesn't worship God, but prophecy does. No, in fact, he says that these speaking in tongues is a form of talking to God in verse 2. The assumed situation of tongue speaking is praise and thanksgiving. In verse 15 and 16, he's talking about singing to God with his spirit and his mind. Praising God with spirit and mind. And the assumption is that the speaking in tongues, which the rest of the people don't understand, is a thanksgiving. He says, you're giving thanksgiving to God, but they don't understand it. So tongues is a form of worship to God. But the problem is, it's anemic. It's partial. By missing out on the message, all sorts of people miss out on the opportunity for worshipful, loving response to God. First of all, the tongue speaker's worship is partful. Is partial, excuse me. Paul says he's worshiping in his spirit, but not with his mind. That the indication seems to be that God, through the Spirit, gifts these men and women with the ability to speak in a foreign language that they themselves don't understand. And there's no evidence from Acts chapter 2 that Peter understood what he was saying when they were worshiping God. It was other people who recognized it. And so Paul is saying, I'm worshiping in my spirit. 
The Spirit is at work within me. I'm worshiping, but my mind, I don't understand what I'm saying. And so even though he knows he's worshiping God and getting benefit from it, part of him is not benefiting from it. And then those who are listening, his fellow brothers and sisters in the church, would not be benefiting, and certainly the outsider or unbeliever is not benefiting either. He wants them to instead desire the gift of prophecy, or as verse 13 says, at least to pray for interpretation, so that there can be a full opportunity to focus on God. Paul encourages them to seek prophecy and similar gifts, or at least interpretation, because they allow for the worship of God to be intelligible, to be understandable, for people to understand what is being said about God, so that the speaker the person speaking in tongues, the listener, and even the outsider can have understanding. And what is it that Paul wants them to understand but the glory of God, which is the purpose of worship? Worship is not primarily about us, it's about God, a response to who he is. Verse 16 says this, he says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? You're saying something great about God. He's worthy of thanksgiving and praise. And yet, if you are saying it and no one else recognizes it, how can they join in glorifying God by saying, yes, that is true. He is powerful. He is good. He is gracious. He is compassionate. They don't know what you're saying about God. Then how can they give God the glory? The hoped-for result is that the unbeliever would fall on his face and worship God. The goal for Paul in all of this is not to put down those speaking in tongues. It's not to say people who speak in prophecy, they're the coolest, best, most spiritual people. But he's saying all of our understanding of our gifts, when we come together in worship, is put through the lens and the perspective of what worship is about. Manifesting through our worship, our love for God. The hoped for result is that the unbeliever would fall on his face in worship. For himself, it's that all of himself would worship. Jesus said that the greatest commandment, echoing the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, is that you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Not one or the other, but all. Paul's desire for himself and his brother and sister who speak in tongues, those who are listening and observing, is that the totality of who they are would be given over in love to God. We know that that this is what God wants from us. Truly spiritual worship strengthens our comprehension of the glory of God, giving us a loving response of worship. For this is the Spirit's work, not to shine the light on himself, but to shine the light on the Father and Son. When Jesus, during the upper room discourse, was preparing his disciples for his departure, said this in chapter 17, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Notice what he's pointing to is what God says, what Jesus says. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is not Christmas lights. The Holy Spirit is a spotlight. 
We love to drive around in the cold, dark winter months, and we look at the Christmas lights, and yet our attention is drawn to the prettiness, to the sparkle, to the colors of the light. The Spirit at work in worship is not saying, pay attention to me. The Spirit at work in worship says, see what Jesus has done as a result of the loving will of God to glorify himself. Spiritual worship puts the glory of God first. And when we pray for the Spirit's work in and through us in our worship, we are seeking to know him. We are asking for hearts and minds and souls to respond. And therefore, we are watching over our worship to see if there are practices, there's habits or tendencies which distract from or confuse or cover over the glory of God. If that's the case, we need to repent and change to make it not about us, not about others, but about the glory of God. And while from this passage we might say, well, this is particularly about overly self-experiential emotional tendencies, I would say, in our neck of the woods, we can reduce our worship to, I know true things about God. I said true things about God. I took notes on true things about God. Therefore, I've worshipped. We're supposed to worship Him with our mind and with our hearts and our souls because God is to be worshipped with all that we are. And if we're to know who this God is that we worship, then spiritual worship needs to love or appreciate God's word. As Paul seeks to build up the church in the worship of God, he focuses on gifts which allow the people to understand through the word, through the message, what God is and what he's done, particularly through prophecy. Now, I'm talking about prophecy. We understand that throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, it covers a wide spectrum of habits and practices, both whether the person was an office bearer as a prophet or they just exercised the gift a few times. Uh, the general mark of a prophet, though, was them giving an utterance akin to, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is what God says to his people or what God is saying to those that are not his people. The work of a prophet is to reveal the will of God through the word of God, whether a temporary instruction, whether a prediction, a warning, or permanent special revelation. The focus of prophecy is what God has said or is saying to his people. Notice how in verse 6 that prophecy is connected to other gifts or other forms of gifts which focus on the word and the message of God. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? These are all descriptors of messages and gifts which associate with the word of God, whether revealing the word of God or giving instruction in the word of God or applying the word of God. Now, Paul is not saying tongues are opposed to the word of God. But the mode of communication there is mainly speaking to God rather than God speaking to his people. But there is a presumed message. There is a presumed song or there's a presumed prayer or a presumed word of thanksgiving. Paul's concern is not that the message is meaningless, but that the speaker and the congregation miss out on the message. They, they might have this feeling, well, we're at home and I'm worshiping God, but he invites them to say, what's it like when you travel to a foreign country and they're speaking in a foreign language? You feel like a foreigner. You don't know what's going on. And the same is just as true 
When you gather and you're speaking in tongues, people don't understand what's going on. They're missing out on the message that you are speaking by the help of the Spirit. And this distress, the people of God, who know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live according to the word of God. And so a worship service of uninterpreted tongue speaking is like giving a starving man a nourishing can of stew without a can opener. The message is there, but it's inaccessible. Rather, worship should be a place where God's word is openly, freely, clearly declared, explained, and applied. Where it serves as the basis of the songs of praise. Where it serves as the basis of the prayers. Spiritual worship is word-based worship. Not our word, but God's word to us about himself. So it is in verse 25 that the prophetic declaration of the word discloses the heart of the unbeliever and leads them to worship. It shouldn't surprise us because that's how the word works. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The spirit, through the gift of prophecy, speaking the word, convicts and causes men and women to fall down in worship and be transformed by the word. God's people should want the word. We should speak it. Praise God that the spirit is a spirit of revelation. It is the spirit who spoke through the prophets. It is the spirit who breathes out, who inspires the very word of God we are studying this morning. The spirit is about the word. Jesus promised that the spirit would come to the disciples to bring to their recollection everything that Jesus said. The spirit likes to focus on the word, not just power. There are manifestations of power. There are miracles. But when we think of the prophets who performed great miracles, when we think of Moses in the Old Testament before Pharaoh, he wasn't saying, hey, watch what I can do. He's saying, God has said, let my people go so that you will believe me, see the power of my God. Even when Jesus and the Holy Spirit performed great signs and wonders, healings and so forth, when there was no faith, he wouldn't perform. Because if there was none, no willingness to hear the message of the kingdom, why declare the power of the kingdom? So spiritual worship should be word-saturated. Everything flowing from and reflecting the word of God, which reveals the God whom we are worshiping. And this is why I would say that the gift of prophecy per se has, like the gift of tongues in particular, faded or at least changed in nature because we have the authoritative, complete revelation by the Spirit of God's Word to His people. And so rather, the Spirit focuses on gifting people for discipling and evangelism and teaching and application and instruction in the Word of God. So we see God's Word at the center of our worship. God's Word calls us into worship. God's law shows us what God desires from us. God's word assures us of forgiveness. God's word instructs us and is the word that feeds us and nourishes us to go out in his service. When we live on God's word, when we understand who God is and what he's about, that causes us in our gathered worship to not only love him and honor his word, but to love one another. 
The building up of the church is seen in worship which instructs and edifies God's people and invites them into mutual participation in that worship. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Speaking in prophecy, worshiping according to the word of God, loves one another. Because the word is the basis for building them up, for instructing them in what is true so that they can grow. The word is the basement for their encouragement, not their circumstances, not their emotions, not what they think about themselves, but what God has said and done on their behalf. The word spoken in the gift of prophecy is for their consolation. Where their griefs and their sins are heavy upon them, the word of God reveals the hope of God. God honoring word centered worship is spiritual because it loves one another. While worship is about God, spiritual worship, which rightly focuses on Him, wants to love other people by inviting them into the knowledge and worship of God. Notice that verse 18 and 19 reveal that Paul speaks in tongues. He says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. And while he would be happy for all of them to have that gift, the greater gift he desires is not that they would be like him. What, what's the word, you know, uh, emulation or imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And Paul, in many ways, wants Corinth to be like him, but not here. Because while it would be great for them to be like him, they would miss out on something better. The ability to knowingly worship God. Love seeks the good of the other. And if we love our brother and sister, we don't want them to be like us. We want them to know God. We want their focus to be on God. And so when he is speaking or the person is speaking in tongues to the praise and thanksgiving of God, the other person misses out on understanding so that they could give an amen. But notice that Paul wants them to not only understand what's going on, so that they can say, okay, I hear what you're saying. You're saying this thing about God. That's interesting. No, the point is so that they can receive the benefit of saying, yes, amen. We love one another not only when we're clear, according to the Spirit's revelation, what we're to do, but when we invite others into it. it how, how loving would it be if I said, today's responsive reading is from Psalm such and such, and then I began reading and I didn't give you the text, or I didn't tell you where to jump in. You might know what the message is. You might see what it is, but you can't participate with me. Love for God and honoring his word wants to invite others to join in. We want other people to know God, to be instructed, to be built up, to be convicted and encouraged. And so how can God's people be lovingly built up into worshipers according to the word of God if they can't understand the message? Whether it's because of tongues or because we add so much or confuse so much that they can't understand. The underlying point of this passage was a large issue for the Reformation. On the first hand, because the Reformers like Luther saw so many things that weren't based on the Word of God. It was based on the preferences, experiences, or traditions of man. And so they said, we need to do this according to the Word of God. But then if, as they were trying to build their worship and their beliefs and their practice according to the word of God, they realized we can't do this if no one knows the word of God. 
that what benefit was it for the Roman Catholic priests to be preaching God's word when they did in Latin when no one spoke Latin? And so part of the outflowing of the honoring of God's word was to translate it into the words and language of everyday people. And so Luther translated God's word into German and so on. We should seek to speak in a way that we can be understood. And when people don't understand, to give explanation. Worship and theology that is word-based doesn't just say this is what God's word says, but seeks to help other people understand it. We need to ask, is this what we're expecting out of worship? Are we coming to worship out of love for one another, that others would be built up to glorify God from the word of God? Or are we coming with, with our little Starbucks cup saying, hey, fill me up. I brought my special cup. I want my special coffee. And I'm going to evaluate the service based on whether my needs are met. Are we coming to get our individual cups filled? Or are we coming to contribute in worship to the laying out of a feast from which we hope all will feed? If our worship is spiritual, if it reflects the love which builds up, then we will not just ask, what do I get out of it? But we will ask, does my neighbor understand? Would this have helped my coworker, the unbeliever who doesn't understand? Am I willing to explain it? Am I willing to use language that they understand? Do I love others in the way that I worship by bringing them in to glorify God, to hear his word? We don't ask this question just for our fellow brother and sister, but we also ask it for the outsider or unbeliever. Gathered worship is not for the unbeliever. Let's be clear. It's for God's people gathered in the presence of God to worship God. But it certainly considers the outsider and the unbeliever. Paul asked them to consider what it would be like if everyone was speaking in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever comes in. They're not going to be convicted. They're likely going to be turned off or confused or say, this isn't a place where God is. This is a place where mania reigns. No, he wants them to consider the unbeliever in how they worship. Doesn't verse 22 say, though, that tongues is for the unbeliever? Let me try to explain what's happening in these verses. Uh, he quotes Isaiah 28, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to the people. They will not listen to me, says the Lord. And thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, in Isaiah 28, God's people were not trusting, were not obeying God. And so Isaiah says, Because you will not listen to me, I will proclaim my judgment upon you, because you will have to listen to the voice of foreigners when they conquer you. For their unbelief, they would be managed, they would be overseen and overthrown by people of foreign tongues. And so it's a sign for unbelievers because it was a condemnation on those who chose not to believe God in the Old Testament, in the context of Isaiah. And now, in the context of the outpouring at Pentecost, the gift of tongues is saying that for the Jews that have turned their back on God and not received the Messiah, God is sending the message to the Gentiles. It is a sign for the unbeliever that God has turned the message to them. But prophecy... For those who are already attentive to the word of God, 
that's the gift, that's the sign that God has given them. As God's word is clearly, understandably proclaimed among his people, it affords the opportunity for the unbeliever to recognize the presence of God. To not just hear about God, but see God at work. We know this to be the case today. How many people's chief concern or objection to Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians? And how could people say, you've been sent into the world, go into the nations proclaiming Jesus, discipling them, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded them if you don't talk to them in the way that they understand? But if we worship God in a way that's comprehensible and understandable because we focus on the word of God dependent on his spirit, that shows love for them and shows the reality of the love of God that we are proclaiming. The church is not built up by impressing unbelievers through tongues or through showmanship or through business strategies. The church is built up by inviting them in through the word of truth in a way they can understand. And so we are called to let the gospel and the hardness of sinful hearts be the only barriers to unbelievers. We should expect and desire them to be among us. I should preach every Sunday, not to unbelievers, but certainly in a way that unbelievers could understand or in a way that will help you explain things to unbelievers. And so we are called to tear down any unbiblical barrier and explain anything that would be confusing because we want them not to like us or feel comfortable, but because we want them to come into the presence of the living God. We don't invite them to recognize in us a particular cultural demographic, a certain political platform, a style of worship, or an impressive public speaking. We love them by making sure that they can hear the message of the gospel loud and clear. That is spiritual worship. Whether we're on vacation, as many are on this summer, traveling for business, oftentimes we might visit another church. And sometimes we can find out a lot about them through their website or through a recommendation. Sometimes we just drive by a church and say, well, I'm, I'm here, I'll check them out. And then we might share with someone else. They might say, well, how was that church? Someone asks you if you're visiting with Christ Church, and they ask you, what did you think of this church? We visit another church and we ask you, how will we evaluate it? Will we evaluate it on the style of the music? The charisma of the pastor? Will we be able to go to churches where there are tongues or loud music or no instruments and say that they worshipped God? Because the Spirit glorified God among the people. Because God's word was declared. Because the people were built up in truth and they showed care of the gospel for unbelievers when we ask ourselves about our own worship, the what and the how and the why, may we make sure that we are worshiping God in spirit and truth, that the Spirit's presence is known among us here at Christ Church, not because of our performance, but because we glorify God, because we listen to His Word, because we love each other, and we invite the unbeliever in. Let's pray. Lord, would we be a people that worship according to your spirit, in the ways of the spirit, for your glory. Amen.